This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me all the way from the United States is Dr. Lise Alshler. Dear to my heart, lady, that you are. Lise is a naturopathic doctor with board certification in naturopathic oncology, who's been practicing since 1994. She maintains a naturopathic oncology practice out of naturopathic specialists, a practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Lise works as an independent consultant in the area of practitioner and consumer health education. Lee's also received an honorary degree from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and the Joseph Pizzorno Founders Award from Bastia University in the same year. She's the current president of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians, that's ONC-ANP, and you can learn more about this at uh, drlees.net. Lees is also the executive director of tapintegrative.org, a non-profit educational resource for integrative practitioners. Famously, Lees is the co-author, along with Carolyn Gazella, of The Definitive Guide to Cancer and The Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer, both texts of which anybody who wants to care for or just those who wish for the evidence regarding natural medicines and the supportive care of cancer should get and read those. And lastly, she co-created the 5tothriveplan.com and co-hosts a radio show, 5 to Thrive Live, on the Cancer Support Network about living more healthfully in the face of cancer. And I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine, Leeds. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. I'm delighted to be here with you, Andrew, <laughs> as always. Now, we're going to be talking about a subject that is dear to my heart, as, as I understand is to yours, and that's the pros and cons of coffee. <laughs> yes. Are there any cons? <laughs> well, we'll go through a couple of those purported cons because it's interesting how the research on coffee has done an about face since the early 90s. Coffee was such a bad mm -hmm. thing and you couldn't even drink it in pregnancy back then. It was really bad for heart disease, really bad for cancer. And now we've had this complete about face. Yeah, we really have. And I love it when we can justify our previously thought of as bad habits. Mm. That always makes me feel happy, happy, <laughs> you know. And I and I think that um this research is is exciting and it's interesting because it still has not penetrated into the lay public. I still get people that proudly will come into my practice and proudly tell me that they've made really great diet changes, including they've given up coffee. Mm. So there's still, most people still associate coffee, I think, with, you know, as a bad habit. But as with any bad habit, we can overdo it, of course. But in moderation, it seems to me like the data clearly is indicating it's actually quite a good habit. And this is what's surprising. I mean, it would have to be the number one herbal addiction in the Western world. Um, I, I remember an interesting article many years of many years ago called "Storm in a Teacup," and I'll maybe go into that a little bit later. But coffee drinkers 
sometimes at least, and I would say often, have other bad habits, like, for instance, smoking. We used to think that, you know, coffee carried this risk, but maybe the research is showing that it was these other habits that were the cause of this and not the coffee itself. So why was right. it Why was it so bad? And what's basically changed in the research? Well, you know, I think you really pointed to something that was confounding the research quite a bit, which was that, you know, for a long time, coffee was associated with smoking. And, you know, it's kind of more recently, actually, that coffee has emerged as such a cultural phenomenon on its own, Mm. Um, whereas previously it was more something people did, you know, along with their cigarettes and people smoked a lot more and um, most recently, there was a big study that was published looking at all the data. This just came out in February of this year, 2016, and they took uh, they were able to to do a study on the relationship between coffee drinking and mortality from all causes, and they only looked at non-smokers. They were able to take that out, and when they took the smokers out, they saw that there was a clear linear relationship. So, up to moderation, which in their study was five cups a day of coffee drinking, there was a, do- a dose relationship with reduced risk of premature mortality from pretty much all causes, including cardiovascular disease. When they put the smoking back in, they got kind of a um, nonlinear correlation. So clearly smoking was confounding the data, mm. the relationship. So I think that's what happened, actually. Now, you've been to Australia, or as we like to say, Australia, and I've been to the States, yeah. and a coffee... Here and there just isn't the same thing. If I wanted what I like, I have to ask for um, a what is it, a double latte with extra cream, and that basically gives me what Australians would call a cappuccino. Um, okay. So, so when researchers are talking about a cup of coffee, what do they mean? Well, that's actually a good question. So, technically, they define a cup as a six ounce cup, I believe. So it's actually most people who drink a cup of coffee, and I'm using air quotes, are really drinking more like two cups because they're typically drinking a mug or, you know, like a coffee to, you don't say to go carry out cup yep. um, or takeaway. That's what you say. Takeaway, yeah. Cup. Um, yeah, takeaway cup, which are much <laughs> bigger. So really they're talking about, you know, more like two cups in the studies. But in reality, there's the, you know all the studies that I've read, and I have a I have a whole file actually on my computer, and I'm just gonna tell you that as I, if I look down my list, I've, I've got studies here linking coffee intake to reduce risk of colorectal cancer, biliary cancer, pharyngeal cancer, lung cancer, liver cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and um, all of these studies are showing basically that the more coffee you drink kind of on the on the realm of four cups a day you start to get significant risk reduction in mm. death from these various cancers you and all cause mortality you know what interested me is that um you know, you have a, a passion for treating um, or for, for supporting cancer patients through their therapy and indeed for supporting them to live long and happy lives afterwards. What I was interested in was what other things, like for instance, a friend of mine is cardiac specialist nurse and she was talking many years ago about when they were trying to look at um, angiography, they had to tell patients, not it wasn't just coffee, but they had to tell people about getting off Coke. They had to tell people about getting off chocolate tea, but also their herbal teas. Um, like, for instance, green tea is the, the common one because they all contain caffeine and this might have an interaction. 
with the the medicines that they were trying to use to image the heart, to slow the heart down. Where I'm going with this is heart disease. Now, what I was interested in is this study, and it's in QJM. I don't know what that stands for, I, I've, um, but it's a randomized control trial investigating the influence of coffee on heart rate variability in patients with ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. So when the ST segment is raised after a heart attack, coffee does not affect that. Even though it had some other effects, coffee was found to be safe and not associated with any adverse um, cardiovascular outcomes. So it's not just cancer. We're looking at other things as well. Even with gout, I read, um, there was a study there that it said, this is the first systemic review on the effects of coffee consumption and serum uric acid based on our study. Moderate coffee intake might be advocated for primary prevention. So it's really interesting how this has just done this total about face. Yeah, and I mean, not only, so cardiovascular, let's look at that, and then I want to give you some other conditions mm. that are improved with coffee. But, you know, this cardiovascular uh, linkage is interesting because, of course, if people are highly sensitive to caffeine, like they don't, their liver doesn't metabolize or break down caffeine very effectively. They're slow metabolizers. Yep. They're going to have a lot of caffeine. They're going to get very jittery from it, and they tend to have elevated systolic blood pressure, which if they sustain for a period of time, is a risk factor for heart disease. But for people who are not in that category, and that's the minority, but so people, the rest of us, yep. when we drink caffeine, uh, caffeine and some coffee bean, we're you know imbibing a slew of antioxidants and various um, you know acids found in the coffee bean that have pretty strong antioxidant and blood sugar lowering effects. Mm. And if we, from our modern understanding of cardiovascular disease, we know that cardiovascular disease is really a disease of inflammation of the arteries and the heart and that antioxidation is impaired typically. And when people have insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, which is characterized in part by higher levels of blood sugar, they're going to be at greater risk for developing heart disease. So if we think about heart disease from that perspective, we begin to kind of logic out why this would actually reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease instead of increasing it. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, and then just some other things to throw out there. um, If we go back and think about coffee as as a medicinal plant and how it was used medicinally by the old, the herbalists of old, you know, coffee was prescribed to people who were depressed. And so it has a mood elevating effect. And that is, I think, what most people in modern society term as, uh, you know, I'm not really waking up until I have my cup of coffee. But in fact, it does actually help people with a tendency towards depression or dysthymia. Um, and it is actually associated with um, lower suicide risk in some studies. Um Coffee consumption is also, uh, if you think about from an herbalist perspective, it was also prescribed when people had sluggish bowels or constipation, and we know it's a bowel stimulant, Mm. which actually makes a lot of sense as a medicinal therapeutic indication. Think how many people are constipated, reabsorbing all those enterotoxins, contributing to inflammation and creating systemic disease. So even just the bowel motility effect is going to be very far-reaching, I think. Yeah. Um, so but, yeah, I, you know, I think it's, if you just think about it as an, I mean, I think about all these things as herbs, yeah. right? So this herb, which we all tend to like, has a lot of medicinal effects. I, th- I think what's interesting is that now, not just caffeine, 
the chemical or the the majorly researched chemical from uh, coffee, but whole coffee. Um, indeed, it was the phenolic agents in coffee that they're now attributing to assisting or reducing um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And gastroenterologists in Australia are using coffee as a means to help patients who have an arm um, naffled. Um, Right. It, I think it's really interesting how this is done about face. One of the interesting things for me is that um, I spoke to an allergist in Australia, very well-known guy, Dr. Rob Lobley, and I really, really admire his work. He was telling me that uh, his whole team did the elimination diet and, what, of course, they got off coffee. And he said the biggest thing getting off coffee was the headaches that you got. I started to question that. I said, well, hang on, you did a, an elimination diet. It wasn't just getting off coffee. So what part of that was attributed to coffee and what part of that was, quote, unquote, a detox, which he doesn't subscribe to that um, convention. But I thought, hmm, that's an interesting thing, that we tend to attribute a bad thing to a certain single agent. We like to do this as humans. Right. Can I ask, though, what about, you know, we've seen these bad things in the past being attributed to coffee, and indeed gout, you know, I mentioned gout. Gout, gout treatment, number one, was getting them off coffee because of the theobromines. Now it shows that it might be actually plausible to be advocated. Has coffee changed, perhaps? I, you know, I don't think so, really. I mean, I guess I don't know for sure, but I don't think so. Certainly there's, I mean, it's originally from Ethiopia, I believe, is the origin of coffee. And then it has now spread, of course, all over the world and it's grown all over the world, so I'm sure each origin lends a different biochemical profile to coffee. Maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, but I wonder. I, to my knowledge, I don't think it's really changed. I, I just wonder because I remember it was probably a decade ago when the coffee and tea companies decided that um, they would start um, advocating or start advertising that they were a, a really good source of antioxidants. And, and I wonder if maybe the preparation the manufacture of the coffee beans might have changed in that time, whereas, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, it was get the caffeine. <laughs> I, right. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's, but yeah, yeah, I don't know either. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know one thing that's a little bit different that's available now is, are these uh, green coffee bean yeah. extracts. So then, you know, the young beans that haven't been roasted yet, and they have, a really high concentration of chlorogenic acid, which is not found in as high a concentration, still in the roasted bean, but this chlorogenic acid is really potent as a way to stimulate the metabolism of sugar and fat in the body. It's also a very potent antioxidant. There was a study that um, that was in the journal Diabetes, Metabolic Syndrome, and Obesity, and um, after 12 weeks of a green tea, green coffee bean extract, there was significant weight loss. I think the subjects lost about 10% of their overall body weight, and most of that was, was body fat. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a lot of good research that has linked coffee uh, consumption, just regular coffee now, like three to four cups again. That kind of often you see that dosage with 25% uh, lower risk of type 2 diabetes, which could again be traced back to these chlorogenic acids and their effect on blood sugar. So, you know, maybe the roasting process has changed and we're preserving more of that chlorogenic acid. I suppose that's a possibility. Mm. Well, you mentioned before about the the uses of coffee reducing the risk of certain cancers. I was interested to find that um, there was a 
a couple of uh, papers where coffee showed an increase in lung cancer, for instance, and an increase in gastric cancer, which surprised me, but that was at a really high dose. Do you know anything about these studies and can you explain their results at all? Yeah, there is. Uh, there was a study and it was actually published in 2012 in, in a journal called Lung Cancer, surprisingly. <laughs> and uh, they observed a dose response relationship between coffee consumption and increased risk of lung cancer. Mm. Um, and so the more coffee that people drank, the higher their risk of lung cancer. However, yeah. you might imagine yes. a big confounder in that study was smokers, right? Yeah. So, uh, the obvious um, one would be it's smoking. a hard thing to tease apart. Yeah, hard thing to tease apart there. Um, that same study actually found that green tea consumed at seven over seven cups a day reduced the risk of, of lung cancer. So... You know, uh, I think that there was something, you know, indicative of, again, some benefit to these flavonoids found in tea and coffee. But, yeah, I think, uh, you know, lung cancer is probably the weakest link in terms of cancers. Yeah. The rest, though, seem pretty strong as a, as a benefit, yeah. beneficial effect. What about that one with gastric cancer with high dose above 6.5 cups a day showing an increase in gastric cancer? That really surprised me. Yeah, I don't know what that would be either, but I think that that's consistent with the studies. Like the benefit is seems to be very dose dependent up till about four to five cups a day, and then once you get past that, the the tightness of the association tends to weaken, and you don't get you don't really see as much benefit. So it seems like it's a bit of a um, positive effect up to four ish, five-ish cups a day. And yeah. again, those are the six-ounce size cups. So I think as we would imagine, um, too much of a good thing can become a challenge to the body. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. You know, maybe there's some effect locally in the GI tract, which has to do more with the acidity, or, you know, and the pH balance or um, reflux or something like that. Well, you know, I mean, my my finger sort of starts to waver towards the microbiome and how we're aberrating it with bad diet. You know, if this was a US mm -hmm. population and most of the US population is overweight, it'd be interesting to see what, you know, when you tease out all of this stuff, what, what part is really attributable to maybe a... Um, increases fat burning. Mm lowers blood sugar, really improves insulin sensitivity. Yep. I mean, all that has yep. got to be so important. To and nestled, yeah. Body weight, so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's some pretty good studies on looking at the dietary impact of coffee and caffeinated coffee, and caffeinated coffee especially, on improving that insulin sensitivity. And it even has been shown that when people eat a, a high-carb meal and they drink coffee, they have less, insulin resistance than if they don't drink the coffee. So yeah. this is where, you know, people's perhaps poor breakfast choice of having a muffin or, you know, some pastry along with their coffee, at least their coffee is going to help them manage the pastry a little bit. Mm, a little bit. <laughs> so, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Not advocating that breakfast. No. <laughs> you mentioned the, um, the epigenetics and uh, some of the nutrigenomics, I guess, um, before with regards to C-O-methyltransferase um, um, and how people handle coffee, the fast or slow metabolizers. What percentage would be either? How do you, what do you see in your practice? Um, you know, I used, I used to measure it a bit more than I do now, so I don't actually measure it anymore. I mostly ask people, like, if you drink a cup of coffee, do you get wired all day long or can you drink a cup of coffee in the afternoon? And if you do... 
Does it prevent you from sleeping all night? And um, so by that, I infer. So if they were to answer yes to those questions, I would infer that they're slow metabolizers. And I would say that I think less than 15%. That's a bit of a guess, but it's it's definitely not the norm. Most people, you know, they prefer not to have a coffee. It's a little harder for them to sleep, but they don't in the afternoon, but it doesn't prevent them from sleeping is definitely the norm. Yeah. Whereas the fast metabolizers, they could drink coffee. You know, they're, they're the people they can drink coffee with an evening meal and still get to bed. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And they, you know, hardly are affected by coffee at all. They they tend to be a bit over consumers, actually, because they're looking for that alertness factor the, from the coffee next hit, and they yeah. tend to eat. Yeah, I had an interesting, uh, somebody recommended to me once, you know, I was mentioning that I don't like to take naps during the day because I wake up so groggy. Mm. And he said, oh, I've got a great strategy for that. I take, I drink a cup of coffee and then I go and I take a nap. And what happens is I go to sleep because coffee doesn't prevent me from falling asleep right away. And when I wake up that all that caffeine has kind of affected my brain by then. 20 minutes later, I wake up and I'm perfectly alert. (laughs) So (laughs) pre-dosing. Yeah, that's so, that's, that's um, organization I, I'm for you. Not a napper still, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was that was a good good uh, little tip. <laughs> so, so what about the relevant dose? Uh, I remember reading some things that it actually, you know, years ago we used to say, oh, no more than two cups a day. Now it seems that it starts at two cups and goes up to it like four cups a day. Is that right? What sort of mm-hmm. dose do you tend to advocate? Yeah, that's about what I do. But again, nobody really drinks a cup of coffee anymore. So really what people are drinking is two cups typically to start. And that's what they call a cup of coffee. And so really I say one to two cups of coffee, which translates into two to four cups of two to four research cups of coffee. Um, And yes, I think that that's the way to go. You know, there's one important caveat to this, which is we've mentioned some of these other constituents in coffee, which we, you know, we're implying, I think, have a role to play in the benefit of coffee. And I think that's really important because um, like energy drinks that extract out the caffeine, uh, yes. uh, those are dangerous. Yes. And, you know, they're, they're high quantities of caffeine, just like we would imagine. You take a constituent out of its, its whole food, you know, situation, and now you've got something which is really irritating to the heart, uh, puts blood pressure up you know, has been implicated in actually some deaths in the United States, especially in teens that are drinking these energy drinks in great quantity or mixing it with alcohol. And that's the worst. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I think that's probably not necessarily the, but one of the biggest um, causes of the rise in alcohol-fueled violence is the combination of these caffeine, sugar, huge amount of sugar, and alcohol drinks combining it with an alcohol drink. And they're, so they're, they're fueled um, or they're drunk and they're wired as well. It's, it's just a nightmarish concoction. Yeah, and I guess I'm <clears throat> just trying to scratch my brain for anything that would be worth mentioning as a sort of a downside of coffee, <clears throat> lest we appear un, you know, too biased. <laughs> uh, and um, I guess the, there is a study that did show that people who were already hypertensive, so they already had high blood pressure, and they were all elderly. Yeah. When they, in, so in this case, it was engaged over the age of 60 or so, when they drank coffee, their blood pressure actually did go up. Yep. And that kind of makes sense, too, to me, just from a, by a physiological level, because if you think about somebody who's over 60 who's hypertensive, they probably have some pretty good atherosclerosis, well, you know, pretty well-established, so that they've got 
hardening of the arteries, less flexibility, and now you're giving them a stimulant which is going to at least temporarily vasoconstrict. Mm. So I think you would expect to see a high, higher blood pressure in those individuals. So that might be one group of people to mitigate the quantity a bit, maybe keep it at the two cups a day range. So that, that leads into my next question, and that was the... Um the other caveat, I guess, and that is uh, the interactions with certain meds, especially things like heart med medications, blood pressure medications are the, the probably the most volatile, if you like. But what about things like psychiatric medications? I mean, a huge amount of psychiatric patients are coffee drinkers. But what if you change I mean, your like diet? Most of them are, right? Yeah, yeah. But what if, you cha- what if they changed their diet and were already on a, a, an antipsychotic medication of some sort or an antidepressant, and then they started to intake coffee? Um, I think that that should be watched and might have something to do with, you know, some psychotic or mood disturbances in those people. You know, certainly people that are prone to or have conditions that are characterized by overactivity of part of their, you know, neurologic, central neurological system. Because mm-hmm. caffeine is a really strong neurostimulant. So I, and I think that that has been documented actually. I mean, the clinical relevance, it, so it's a good, certainly a good thing to consider. I think the clinical relevance is limited because, boy, from what I've seen, most people on They're already psychiatric on. medications and psychiatric <laughs> institutions, coffees everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess that would be the same with heart meds as well. Most people are already intaking coffee as a, a lifestyle thing. And so they have that lifestyle issue. Um, they have heart disease because of overweight and not exercising enough and whatever factors, and then they start their medication. So the baseline is already there for their, not just caffeine intake, but their coffee intake, yeah? Right, right, yep, I would agree with that. You know, and I think when we think, of, when we're talking about this, I just have to go back to this this role of, of coffee as an antioxidant, which I think antioxidant slash hypoglycemic, because if we think about, all of the chronic diseases that you know we're seeing in people, we can definitely name both of those things, oxidative stress and some degree of hyperglycemia or insulin resistance underlying these conditions. So, you know, to me, this really tells us why coffee is so critical. And maybe this is why we didn't see these strong studies, you know, in the 1950s, 40s, where mm-hmm. The rate of insulin resistance was less. Mm. Um, stress was actually less in some ways, um, you know, except at wartime. But I think that, you know, in general, we're, we have we're a different population now. So the, the, sub, the study group has changed. Yes, absolutely. Um, and our diets are so antioxidant depleted. I mean, in the United States, one of the most common sources of antioxidants is ketchup or tomato sauce, as you say, and yep. um, coffee. Yeah. So, you know, our bodies are desperate for anything. <laughs> yeah. There's an old axiom of naturopathic um, practice, and that is, you know, coffee in moderation is fine, but if you uh, take, intake high amounts of coffee over a long period of time, that it actually, quote unquote, wastes your adrenals and gives you adrenal fatigue. But is mm-hmm. there any real evidence for that? And and what are the messages as a last thing would you um, impart to practitioners um, to care for their patients with regarding coffee? Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting question. So I don't think there's any direct evidence to support this. And I think it also goes back to when we say adrenal fatigue, most people who 
appear to be fatigued, and we trace it back to their stress response, mm-hmm. are actually in a hypercortisolemic state. Yep. So their adrenal glands are actually overproducing cortisol, not fatigued. So mm-hmm. we've misnamed that yep. phase yep. in most people. Um, and do does caffeine increase cortisol levels? It can. So people who are feeling the effects of having too much cortisol, one of which is fatigue, poor sleep, I mean, a myriad of other things, will tend to go to coffee to try to boost themselves up and get through the day. And so I think in that sense, they're using the wrong crutch and in fact, missing the opportunity. So I do think it's a detriment. When those people stop drinking coffee, they often feel worse and then a lot better. Mm. And I think that's because they've sort of taken away, they've taken their foot off the gas pedal a little bit. And when they give up caffeine, they can't help but uh, reevaluate their life patterns in general. So I think it leads to other lifestyle changes. Um, and just frankly, the, you know, the lack of caffeine probably does drop that cortisol a little bit in those people, which is going to help them physiologically. Mm. I, th- I think that just to illustrate that point regarding using it as looking for the wrong crutch, um, there was a patient um, who had marked blood loss from gastrointestinal lesions, but obviously felt tired from that because he was anemic, severely anemic, and was using caffeine to stimulate himself up to be able to continue through the day. Obviously, coffee mm. then is the wrong yeah. crutch. You need to be treating the cause. Um and eventually this this uh, person got the correct treatment. But it was just an interesting thing how people will rely on a now um, Band-Aid, if you like, to get them through the day. Yeah, that's a great example. And the other thing that I've seen, you know, we know that coffee stimulates the dopa- dopamine system in the brain, which is the reward system. Yep. So that system, unfortunately, habituates really easily. So mm. when we reward our, when we increase dopamine, it takes more to get that same dopamine kind of surge, yep. which if people are, you know, kind of tired, they're exhausted with life, they're stressed out, they really crave that dopamine. Their brain just like does almost anything for it. So those people will tend to, they're already pushing themselves beyond their means. And then they're going to probably be drinking more caf- coffee to get that dopamine surge to kind of reward themselves, help them feel that little bit of euphoria in their day. But that too is just going to accelerate their problem. But I think for those people, certainly these really high stress, go, 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 you know, early morning to late night type of people are probably not the best candidates for high coffee consumption. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I like to see around the place now is how coffee is changing in that um, or, or the preparation of coffee is changing. So people are becoming rather um particular in their type of coffee they coffee that they like. So it's not just a cappuccino anymore. They're now looking at the ristrettos, the macchiatos, but also they're looking at the organic types of coffee and they might be adding ghee and medium-chain mm-hmm. triglycerides, for instance. So they're really turning into this quite healthful type of herbal drink. It's really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, and that's actually, I think, uh, the organic coffee is something that I do counsel my patients about. You know, non-organic coffee is you're basically extracting that bean every morning when you make your coffee through, you know, with water and you're going to extract out water-soluble pesticides. So to me, it makes a lot of sense to Mm. drink organic as often as we can. And I am so glad to see more and more of that available and tasting good, as good. (laughs) So as a last little roundup for our practitioners, um, two to four cups a day for most people unless they can't metabolize. What other messages? 
Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, if, I mean, I think for me, the bottom line is this, that people come to us looking for help with diet changes. Yeah. And I think we have to, you know, we have the responsibility to focus their efforts on the most impactful changes possible, the things that are going to be most useful and really avert their current state of health towards more health and avert their risk for disease. Mm. So with that perspective, you know, I think taking people's coffee away is not, shouldn't be number one on the list unless they're in this category that we talked about where they're, you know, really using it at the wrong crutch. Then I think it could be a very helpful lifestyle intervention. But I think, you know, if we sort of think, okay, this is an antioxidant, this is actually maybe one of the components in their diet that's helpful. What else can I look at that would really help, you know, how close to the Mediterranean diet pattern is this person's Mm. diet? How many vegetables are they eating on a daily basis? What's their water intake like? I mean, those are the things that I think we can kind of look at because it just, when we vilify foods, we can get ourselves caught in a little bit of a trap and we miss opportunities to make really impactful changes in people's lives. Dr. Lise Alshler, once again, you take us through some salient points that can help practitioners uh, help support their patients with practical, sensible uh, lifestyle modification. And I, I just, I gotta say, I just truly love your work and, and really admire what you do for people. You're an amazing human being. So thank you for joining us on FX Medicine today. Well, my pleasure, and it takes one to know one. (laughs) You are so sweet. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.